0: Now, friends, we've come in the ninth chapter to the last three trumpets that are blown. And these last three are separated from the other four by the fact that we have here the three woe trumpets. In other words, as we were told back in chapter 8, verse 13, "...and I saw and heard one eagle flying in mid heaven saying with a great voice, Woe, woe, woe to them dwelling upon the earth by reason of the remaining voices of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to blow the trumpet. Now, we have here the blowing of the last three trumpets. And very frankly, we've moved into that which is highly significant and symbolic in one sense. But I want to make a statement in just a moment about that. But we are coming to a section that is actually weird and wild. And it boggles the mind as we read through this chapter here. So much so that all kinds of interpretations have been given of this section. May I say that let's get our feet back on the ground and get our heads screwed on right. And if we do, we'll find out that the things that are mentioned here ought not to frighten you. If you're a child of God, you're not going through these things. This is not the blessed hope of the church to endure the things that are mentioned here. This is a Christ-rejecting world. The church has been taken out of the world, and these things are to happen in the great tribulation period. John has made it very clear that he's speaking concerning that period in this particular section and the blowing of these seven trumpets. Now, we come to these last three. These woes mark the deepest darkness and the most painful intensity of the great tribulation period. And this is generally associated with the last three and a half years of the 70th week of Daniel, which is the Great Tribulation period. And these will be the blackest days in human history. Now, the language used in this section is admittedly the most difficult of interpretation. This does not preclude our policy of following the literal line. Even when the Figures adopted are the most vivid and wild. If another interpretation is proper, John will furnish us the key. So with that thought in mind, knowing where this fits in, and knowing that we should be very careful in our interpretation, we move now into this chapter here. Now, will you note verse 1, and I'm reading, as usual, my translation, which I cannot sincerely recommend to anyone. I still say the authorized version is the best that we have with notes. Now, I know I sound like a square, and the reason I sound like a square is because I am a square. And that's better than going in circles, especially in this book here. Now, let me read. Verse 1, "...and the fifth angel sounded," that is, blew the trumpet. And I saw a star out of heaven fallen into the earth. And there was given to him a key of the long shaft of the abyss. And that's the proper meaning of the word that's translated the bottomless pit. You can call it the long shaft or the pit or the well of the abyss. First of all, let's look at this star that is here. We've already seen two stars, and we said they were literal stars, meteors, that fall to the earth. You probably heard about the boy and the girl that were engaged. They were sitting out on the porch in the summer evening, and they began to play a game. If he saw a shooting star first, why, he got to kiss her. And if she saw it first, he just didn't get the kiss. Well, she got angry with him because he started counting lightning bugs. And he sure had quite an advantage there. Now, meteors are the shooting stars that you see on a summer day. My wife and I sat on the night of a hotel on Waikiki Beach several years ago when they had a shower of meteors out there, shooting stars. And that's what the paper called them Even the scientists out there call them shooting stars. And so here, I trust we understand that shooting stars are meteors. Now here is a different kind of a star, because it's called a him. And he acts with intelligence, so that we're talking now about an unusual person. This star is different, therefore, from the stars mentioned at the sounding of the fourth trumpet. This star acts with intelligence. He's given a key which he uses, and he's no inanimate star, because I don't think an inanimate star could do this. Now, we believe that this star is Satan. Now, some identify the star with Antichrist. If so, this lends support to the view that Antichrist is Satan incarnate. But I don't accept that. My point is that Antichrist is exactly that. He's everything that Christ is not. And he is motivated by Satan. We'll see that later on. Now, the reasons for interpreting this star as Satan are abundant. For instance, when he's mentioned back in Isaiah 14:12, we'll be seeing that later, the thing that caused him to fall originally. What was it that caused the greatest creature God ever created to fall? Well, we're told in Isaiah 14, 12, "...how art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations?" And the Lord Jesus said in Luke 10:18, "...he," that is, Jesus, said unto them, "...I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven." That would be like a fallen star, you see. And then again, Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 11:14, "...and no marvel, for Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light." Now, I think these scriptures abundantly confirm the position that Satan is in view here. And John's going to state later that Satan was put out of heaven and cast to the earth. That'll be in Revelation 12, 7 and 9. But if we've established the fact that we're talking now that Satan is cast out of heaven. Now, what does he do? Well, he goes down, takes the key, which apparently means that God is permitting him to do this. Because the key denotes authority and power. And that he has, that is, Satan has. And this is given to him of God, actually. It's a permissive will of God. Now, the long shaft of the abyss means the long shaft leading to the abyss. The abyss is the bottomless pit, which we're going to see in Revelation, the 20th chapter. The abyss and Hades may be synonymous terms. But the abyss and hell are not the same by any means. And we'll see that when we get over later on. The important thing here is that our Lord probably referred to this in Matthew 12:40, And probably I ought to turn there and look at that because I didn't intend to, but I think I'll turn there and read this to you. And he says here in Matthew 12:40, 40, "...for as Jonas was three days and three nights in the fish's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." He speaks here of his descent into the heart of the earth. The body of Jesus was actually not buried in the earth. It was put in a new tomb and it certainly was not in the heart of the earth. Rather, what we have is in this language in Matthew, he went to the abyss, and that apparently is Hades or Sheol. It's in two compartments. The Lord Jesus made that quite obvious when he told about the rich man and Lazarus, and how that the rich man and the poor man both died, and the rich man went into, not hell, but into this place here. And the poor man is in Abraham's bosom, our paradise, as our Lord called it. Now, he's gone down there at his death to announce to the saved his victory, and that he'll be leading them into the presence of God. And that's what I think Paul meant when he said he led captivity captive. Now, he went to the abyss to announce that his redemption had been wrought. I want to add this, however. I think it behooves us not to be dogmatic where Scripture is silent. But there is the thought that there is a shaft that leads from the surface of the earth to the heart of the earth. Now, I know when I say that, that it sounds very much like you're being superstitious, but I don't say I even accept that. Let me put it like this. I do accept it. I would not be dogmatic about it. If some of you had some advanced information that I don't have and could show me and prove to me it means something else, I'd certainly be glad to accept that. The Lord now holds that key, by the way, and Peter tells us that demons are imprisoned there. And Jesus said this in Luke 8:30, and I'll read that. And Jesus asked him, saying, What's thy name? And he said, Legion. Because many demons were entered into him, and they besought him that he would not command them to go out into the deep, that is, the abyss. That was what he's talking about there. It's a very literal place, by the way. This idea that, heaven and hell are mythological, and that heaven is sort of the beautiful isle of somewhere, a Shangri-La hanging out in space somewhere, may I say to you that that's not the teaching of the Word of God. The teaching of the Word of God, that heaven is as literal as the place where you live today, and hell is more real than the place where you live. Although some folk, in fact, someone wrote me about the place where they lived, and they felt like it was the backside of the desert. Well, be that as it may, we're talking about that which is literal. So that during the last part of the Great Tribulation, this key is given to Satan, and he's given a freedom that he's never had before. And that explains, I think, why men cannot die during this period because Satan wants to keep them alive. He doesn't want his army decimated at all. Now I read verse 2, "...and he opened the long shaft of the abyss, and there came smoke out of the long shaft of the abyss, as the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air would darken from the smoke of the shaft of the abyss." Out of that shaft, like a great erupting volcano, "...will come smoke to cover the entire earth." Now, this is smog of the most vicious type. And I think the literal interpretation of this verse that we've given you is the most satisfying one. It certainly is to me and has been to many others. Now, I read verses 3 and 4. "...and out of the smoke came forth locusts upon the earth, and power was given to them." "...as the scorpions of the earth have power. And it was said to them in order that they should not hurt the grass of the earth, nor any green things, nor any tree, but only the men who do not have the seal of God on their foreheads." Now, this to me beggars description. I think that John here is given the symbolic language that describes creatures that are so frightful that this is the only way you could speak of them. And let's look at this now. These are locusts, but they have a different character. They're just no common locusts by any means. First of all, they eat no vegetable products. We find that locusts today eat nothing but the green stuff. And here... They don't even touch the green stuff. And then the locusts of the earth have no king. And we are told in Proverbs thirty twenty seven that they have no king. But these locusts have a king. And in the plague in Egypt, and by the way, there's a striking similarity of this plague to the plagues in Egypt. As we've noted that before, in the plague in Egypt, "...the inspired recorded said before them there were no such locusts as they, neither after them shall be such." So this is a different type of locust than the plague in Egypt. Now, the other thing that Govet remarks about these is they are literal creatures resembling the literal animal's named The lion, the horse, the scorpion, and the man." Now, I want us to look at this. This is a plague of locusts, which is as literal as the plague of locusts in Egypt. And Joel, you will recall, when we were there, prophesied of a coming plague of locusts. And if you do not recall, turn back to Joel, the first chapter, and read that. I hope many of you are beginning to realize now that you have to have a working knowledge of the Old Testament to understand Revelation. And then the only other thing you have to follow is that it's a simple book, that it's well organized, that it's put to us in divisions that you can't miss unless you've got a system that you've got to defend, and then you just make it mean anything you want to. But if you let John give it to you like it is, then you'll have no problem with Revelation at all. Now, the difference of the locust here and the locust in Joel is the character of the locust and the object of their destruction. They sting as scorpions and their objects are evil men. Now, let me read on in verse 5, still my translation. It was given to them in order that they should not kill them, but in order that they should be tormented five months and their torment "...was as the torment of a scorpion when it striketh a man." Now, the scorpion is shaped as a lobster and lives in damp places. And his sting is in his tail. Though it's not fatal, it certainly is very painful indeed. And that's the picture that is given to us here. And these are mentioned by Joshua. And I'm taking a little time for this today when he mentioned the hornet. He says in Joshua 24:12, "...and I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out from before you." So that you see the children of Israel acquainted with the Old Testament, believers in that day would understand what he's talking about here in these scorpions. And he also moves on and says here, verse 6, "...and in those days..." "...shall the man seek death, and shall not find it, and they shall earnestly desire to die, and death fleeth from them." That's the reason we said that Satan is given the key here to this shaft, where evidently it's Sheol in the Old Testament, and Hades in the New Testament. And it leads to the abyss. And that is where the dead of the ages pass. That's where their spirits have gone. And that's where the Lord Jesus went to announce the redemption He had wrought on the cross. Now, Satan doesn't want his crowd to die. It's only his crowd that are attacked by these locusts. And so man during this period try to commit suicide and are unable to do it. It reveals something of the awfulness of that day, and Satan wants them here because there's a battle between light and darkness that's being waged. But there are others that think that maybe God won't let them die because sinful man must face up to the music from which there is no escape. It's not a laughing matter to reject Jesus Christ. My friend, it's not a simple thing to ignore him. You hear people say that there's so many things that are important in this life, and I'm willing to grant that many things take second, third, and fourth place. But the most important thing is your decision concerning Jesus Christ. Now that brings us down to verse 7, and I'm going to read now this scripture, and I'm reading from my text, and I Won't recommend it, but I'm at least giving you the literal. Will you listen to it? And the likenesses of the locusts were like unto horses prepared for war. And on their heads were, as it were, crowns like gold, and their faces were as the faces of men, and they had hair as the hair of women. And their teeth were as the teeth of lions, and they had breastplates, as it were, breastplates of iron, and the sound of their wings was as of chariots and of many horses rushing into battle, and they had tails like scorpions and stings, and in their tails was their power to hurt man five months. Now, this is a description of the locusts, and I'm sure you'll agree It's a frightful, weird, and unnatural description. However, we want to examine this just a little closer, and I think it reveals a striking similarity to the locusts in Palestine. And I think that we need to note that. Now, Dr. Vinson makes this comment in his book on Revelation. He says, "...the likeness of a locust to a horse..." especially to a horse equipped with armor, is so striking that the insect is named in German, Hupferd, that is, a hay horse. And in Italian, it's Cavalita, and that means little horse. So that that's the name given to the locust. Now, the faces of locusts do resemble the faces of man. And the antenna of the locust is compared to a girl's hair. And Joel compares the teeth of the locust with those of a lion. You'll find that in Joel 1.6. Many have commented on the weird sound that locusts make. Now, Dr. Vinson again quotes Olivier, a French writer. And here's the quotation. It's difficult to express the effect produced on us by the sight of the whole atmosphere, filled on all sides and to a great height by an innumerable quantity of these insects, whose flight was slow and uniform, and whose noise resembled that of rain." Now, there have been those that have attempted to liken this description to the aeroplane. Well, I'll admit that there is some similarity there. I remember hearing a preacher when I was a young fella that said that since their sting is in the tail, it compared to the rear gunner on a bomber. Well, that all sounds very good, but now we pass from the plane to the jet plane from that day, and maybe this is more like a jet plane, and then we've moved now to the Missile Age, and the missile is the weapon today, maybe you'd want to compare it to the missile. I want to say that I don't want to compare it to anything that's known today because it's not the weapon that's used today. It's going to be the weapon that will be used in the Great Tribulation period. And I don't know what that's going to be. I'm told today that men have weapons so frightful that even Russia and the United States can sit down and talk about it for a while, till they find out whether they're stronger than we are. And when they find that out, they're going to move. But as long as they think we are strong as they are, they won't move. But believe me, friends, the weapons must be frightful to cause men to be willing to sit down at opposite poles, so that I would not attempt to compare this to any weapon that's known to man today. But it's going to bother man for five months, we're told. Now, I read verse 11. They have over them a king and the angel of the abyss. And his name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in the Greek tongue, Iathanaeum, Apollon. These locusts are further differentiated from ordinary locusts in that they have a king over them. And Proverbs thirty twenty seven says the locusts have no king. This leader is one of the fallen angels, I think the chief henchmen of Satan, and he's permitted to lead an invasion of earth for the first time. And this is going to be something that's rather frightening. And his name means in the Hebrew it's destruction, and in Greek it's destroyer. It's the same thing, of course. And he leads this. Now, this confirms what Daniel told us, that the demon world of fallen angels was divided into gradations. There were generals and majors and lieutenants and sergeants and then buck privates. And I think that you'll find the angels of God divided the same way. We saw that in Ephesians. Now, we are told here in verse 12... "...the one woe is past, behold, there come yet two woes after these things." Now, the first woe introduced to us what we believe is the last half of the great tribulation period, and it had a duration of five months. Now, apparently, the last two woes would cover the remainder of that period, and the warning here indicates that worse things are to follow. And the next trumpet reveals it wasn't just idle warning, by the way. Now we come to the sixth trumpet, and here are the angels that are loosed at the river Euphrates. Now I'm reading again my text, verses 13 and 14. "...and the sixth angel blew the trumpet. And I heard one, that is, a single voice, out of the horns of the golden altar, which is before God, saying to the sixth angel, having the trumpet, loose the four angels which have been bound at the great river Euphrates. All right, now will you notice, when the sixth angel blew the trumpet, a command came from the horns of the golden altar. Now that golden altar speaks of prayer. That's what it spoke of in the tabernacle here on earth. And this is where... You will recall back in the 8th chapter where the angel offered prayer at the beginning of the blowing of the trumpets. The sixth angel not only blows the trumpet, but is given a command to loose four angels bound at the river Euphrates. This angel received in turned his orders from a voice that was there at the altar. And who is it? It says that he was at the horn's. Well, it's Christ. He's now ripped off the seventh seal, and this seventh seal just leads into the trumpets, and then will lead on to the seven persons or personalities, and then on to the seven bowls of wrath. Here in Revelation, all of this is bound together. Now, the angels who are bound are evidently evil, or why would they be bound if they were not? and releasing them turns loose a flood tide of destruction on the earth. They were bound away from the others, I think, because of the enormity of their crime. Now, why were they bound at this particular location, at the Euphrates River? Though this, I think, is rather difficult to explain, the prominence of this area in Scripture cannot be overlooked. The Garden of Eden was somewhere in this section. The sin of mankind began here. The first murder was committed here. The first war was fought here. And here was where the flood began and spread over the whole earth. And here is where the Tower of Babel was erected. And to this area were brought the Israelites of the Babylonian captivity, and Babylon was the fountainhead of idolatry, and here is the final surge of sin on the earth during the great tribulation period. So the Euphrates actually marks the division between east and west. It was Kipling, you remember, that said, East is east, and west is west, and never the twain shall meet. Well, that's been true to a certain extent. "...perhaps there's been a restraining influence in the past which has kept the hordes from the east from spilling over to the west, but it's going to be broken down." It was Napoleon who made the statement, "...China is a sleeping giant, and God pity the generation that wakes her up." Well, we waked her up. I'll tell you this, that she's very much alive today, and they have a fourth of the population of the world there, and if you take the peoples of the east, the orient, beyond the Euphrates River, you have most of the population of the world there. And suppose they start moving, and they're going to move someday. That river's been a division point, though, from the time of Alexander the Great. The white man has had his day and colonialism, as far as the white man is concerned, it's over with now. And communism's colonialism is still on the march. But the dark races are awakening. They have been helped back. And apparently these four angels had something to do with holding them back. And you remember Zechariah in the fifth chapter. And we studied that not long ago. Locates Babylon as the last stand of false religion. That's where it will be. Satan's last stand. Now, these four angels are loose. And notice verse 15 and 16. And the four angels were loose who had been prepared for the hour, the day, and month, and year. And you'll have to Take that literally, my friend, because I don't know how else you'd take it. The very hour is marked out that they might kill the third of man. Notice that. At the blowing of this trumpet, the sixth trumpet, the third of the population of mankind will be removed. We've already seen a fourth removed. Now a third is removed and over half of the population of the earth will be destroyed in the Great Tribulation period. No wonder the Lord Jesus Christ said, except those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. And it says the numbers of the armies of the cavalry was two myriads of ten thousand. And that's two hundred million. And China, India, and Japan... We'd put that many in the field tomorrow, easy enough. What a tremendous thing this is. The size of this arm is stupendous. And that's where the population is today. God help the white man, my friend, when those angels are removed. He wouldn't stand a chance. And what we have here is the wholesale invasion of the demon world that we had back in the locusts. And now they are motivated to a world war. And actually, we've never had a real world war yet, not where every nation is involved. That will take place in the Great Tribulation period. Now, here are 200 million. Are they human beings? I've so far indicated that they could be. But frankly, I believe that what you have here is the invasion of the demon world which is a further result of Satan opening the door of the shaft of the bottomless pit. The following description of these horsemen further confirms this fact. Now, will you notice this? Verses 17 and 18, And thus, after this manner rather, I saw the horses in the vision, or in my vision, as John says, and those that sat on them having breastplates as a fire, that is, fiery red, and hyacinth, and brimstone, and the heads of the horses, whereas the heads of lions, and out of their mouths proceed fire and smoke and brimstone. And these are supposed to be tanks. Well, I don't object to somebody saying that. The only thing is, how do you know that? They'll be using tanks in the great tribulation period. We're talking about a period that's in the future. This could well be, but I have a notion they're going to have something more refined and sophisticated for that period. By these three plagues was the third of men killed by the fire and the smoke and the brimstone that proceeded out of their mouths. Now, notice the colors of these horsemen are not only striking, and they're colorful, but they're unnatural. The fire is fiery red, as we indicated. And hyacinth is the same color as the flower, dull, dark blue. And brimstone is light yellow. Now, the horse here is the animal of war. And actually, hell is now making war on mankind. That is the underworld, I probably should say. These creatures, they are unnatural from the underworld. And they're probably demons or demon control. This is a literal description of them. And I think Dr. Newell, in his book on Revelation, makes this very timely comment. Believe, and you scarcely need any comment. You know the problem today with men when they come to Revelation and say, oh, it's difficult to understand, and you can't interpret it. My friend, the problem is you don't believe it. If you just believe it, read it, this is very clear as to the hellish forces that will be at work during this period. Now, these three plagues that are mentioned here, they're literal plagues. The fire is literal, the smoke is literal, and the brimstone is literal. You had that same thing at the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. And I believe this world will be worse than Sodom and Gomorrah During that period, you talk about homosexuality, attaining respectability. It did in Sodom and Gomorrah, but they went out of business. God put them out of business. And if you think God is going to permit mankind to go into eternity, an unnatural creature, I think you're wrong, my friend. Now, let's move on here. One-third of the population is killed, and one-third of nature had been affected before. But mankind had not been touched. Now, if the population of the world were one and a half billion, then this would mean that 500 million would be slain. And remember that a fourth part had been slain under the fourth seal. This terrible decimation of the earth's populations seems incongruous with all of history until an atomic bomb fell upon Hiroshima. Since then, men have been using more frightening language than that of revelation. They now talk of the total decimation of earth's inhabitants. But the Lord Jesus said He won't permit it, that unless those days were shortened, no flesh would survive. The human race would commit suicide. Now, I'm reading verse 19. For the power of the horses is in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails were like serpents having heads, and by them they hurt. Unnatural horses that are able to kill with their mouths. The weirdest feat of all is that instead of horses' hairs for a tail, they are serpents, which also are used in destroying mankind. Now, verses 20 and 21. And the rest of men who were not killed by these plagues repented not of the works of their hands, "...that they should not worship demons and idols of gold and silver and copper and stone and wood, which can neither see nor hear nor walk. Neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornication, nor of their thefts." Now, the word sorcery in the Greek is pharmakion. Now, pharmakion... Is almost by translation pharmacy. And today, drug stores are called pharmacies. When I was a boy, they were called drug stores. Today, they are pharmacies. And of course, now they sell everything. But pharmacy means drugs, it's the Greek word for drugs. So that We find out that during the Great Tribulation period, drugs have figured in to the lives of the unsaved a great deal. It, of course, serves several purposes. Drugs enable them to bear the judgments that we've had here of the Great Tribulation period. I'm sure that many a person in that period will turn to drugs when they're bitten by these locusts that have these stings in them. And these locusts, stinging them, I'm sure that it's an awful thing. Although they don't die, they feel like they are going to die. And as a result, why, we have here a taking of drugs to overcome the pain and help them endure the great tribulation. And then drugs will figure largely in the religion of that day. And it will be a regular drug culture and drug religion in the days of the Great Tribulation period. Now, what we are seeing today is very small compared to what it will be then. Also, there will be resorting to everything that will deaden The pain, our attempt to lift them out of the trouble of the great tribulation. Liquor will become certainly very prominent again. It's certainly very prominent now. And the big problem in this country today actually is not drugs, but it's alcohol. And I've been over that now several times. But I want to read to you a statement from Dr. Sayes. Arceus, as some call it. And Dr. Arceus was at the turn of the century. The book I have of his was printed, I think, in 1906. That goes back a long ways. Now, I want to read his statement. And the reason I mention the date is, I thought he wrote it yesterday. Or maybe he was preparing it for tomorrow's edition of your local paper. But let me read this statement, for this is his comment on the word sorcery. I'm reading now. We have only to think of the use of alcoholic stimulants, of opium, of tobacco, of the rage of cosmetics and mendicaments to increase love attractions, of resorts to the pharmacopoeia, "...in connection with sensuality of the magical agents and treatments alleged to come from the spirit world for the benefit of people in this, of the thousand impositions in the way of medicines and remedial agents, encouraging mankind to reckless transgression with the hope of easily repairing the damages of nature's penalties, of the growing prevalence of crime induced by these things setting loose and stimulating to activity the vilest passions which are eating out the moral sense of society for the beginnings of that moral degeneracy to which the seer here alludes as characteristic of the period "...when the sixth trumpet is sounded." And that's the end of the quotation. Now, very frankly, you would think that he had written that for today. But in his day, why drugs and even alcohol was not used to the extent that it is today. There was no great drug culture, nor was drugs and alcohol such a big problem in his day, as it is today. And these are the things that are mentioned here. And also, drugs are used today in practically all of these modern cults that use sex as a drawing card also. We are told here that they were guilty not only of sorceries, but of fornication not only of indulging in drunkenness and in drugs, but also fornication, and that leads to thefts. Now, it's alarming today the way that adultery is being practiced in this land. Of course, that is given by the crowd that are promoting it as an evidence of our liberty today and our tremendous advancement of civilization. It's interesting that instead of playing the requiem, why they want to sing and dance and say that we're improving today, that the race is doing that thing. But fornication and robbery and thefts, if you please, are going to be increased and the emphasis that will be placed upon them. I think that Antichrist will use all three of these to bring mankind into subjection to himself. Now, this is a tremendous passage here. So that mankind will be easily lured in that day, under the influence of drugs, why, he will accept anything. You know, one of the reasons that the nightclubs push liquor, not only for the money that there is in it, but it makes their entertainers acceptable. A very lousy singer or comedian just goes over good if you've had two cocktails and three cocktails. Why, he's a star. And that will put Antichrist over. And that is exactly what Paul said in the Second Thessalonians 2, 9 through 12. It says, "...even him who's coming is after the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish, because they receive not the love of the truth that they might be saved. And that's one of the reasons that I believe that the gospel will go out to every creature before the rapture. And certainly, each one's going to hear it during the great tribulation period. So this only happens to those who've rejected the word of God. And I'm reading now from Paul again. And for this cause, God shall send them strong delusion that they should believe a lie, that they all might be damned who believe not the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. And the moment that you reject the gospel and shut your heart To God, you are wide open for the big lie when it comes along. And that's the reason so many today fall for everything that comes along. Someone says, those that stand for nothing, they'll fall for anything. Well, that's it exactly. Those today that are not standing for the Word of God, they're easy prey for the cubs. Now, that brings us to chapter 10. And chapter 10 is the hiatus. Here is this period of explanation of the trumpets of something that we haven't gotten so far. So we have here the interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpets. And in the first seven verses, we have the strong angel with the little book. And then from verses 8 through 11, John eats the little book. All right, this chapter begins the second of a series of interludes between the sixth and seventh, whatever the series was. It was first seals, and now it's trumpets. And it's used to describe the various phases of the great tribulation that we'd not get otherwise. And so between the sixth and seventh seals, there were two groups who were redeemed during the great tribulation, and they were sealed. Now, here between the sixth and seventh trumpets, we have three personalities introduced. In this chapter, the mighty angel is described. And in chapter 11, the two witnesses are introduced, though not identified. Now, there has been a very definite disagreement As to the identity of the mighty angel here, let me read verse 1 in my translation. And I saw another strong or powerful angel coming down out of heaven, clothed with a cloud, and the rainbow was upon his head, and his face was as the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now, as we've said, there's disagreement among outstanding and fundamental Bible expositors here. And this is one of the places where, very frankly, I don't think it's fatal or that it's something that would divide brethren. But you will find that Godet and Vinson, Pettengill, Haan, Ironside, Walter Scott, and William Kelly all identify this strong angel as Christ. Now, Newell and others consider him to be just an angel of great power and authority, but not Christ. And also, Dr. Walford takes that viewpoint, and Vernon McGee takes that viewpoint also. Now, you see that if you go with either crowd here... You'll be in good company. But that first group are some men that I've had great respect for and have loved in the Lord. I've known three of those men, and they were my dear friends. But this is no occasion to divide. But I only say this, if you follow them, and it'll be all right if you do, you'll be in good company. But of course, if you want to be right, you'll want to come along with me on this. Now, I think there's ample evidence to show that He's only a mighty angel. In other words, Christ does not appear in Revelation as an angel. It's true that in the Old Testament, you see the pre incarnate Christ as the angel of the Lord. But you see, after He took on Himself our humanity and He died and rose again. And he's now in a glorified body. We see him in the place of great power and glory, yonder at God's right hand. Now, we never see him as an angel again. When he was here in his humanity, he was not an angel. He was a man. And therefore, he is revealed in the book of Revelation definitely as the glorified Christ as the post-incarnate Christ. He's exalted to the nth degree. And it's well to keep before us constantly that this book is the unveiling of Jesus Christ. New glories of his person and his power and performance are unfolded in each chapter. And he's now the one judging a Christ-rejecting earth. Now... Again, let me say that we're told here, and I want to look at the text very carefully, we're told it's another strong angel. Another here actually means that it's another of the same kind. And the other strong angels that we were introduced to was back in chapter 5, verse 2, and there there was no argument. It was not Christ. And so it's the livery of this angel that has led some to identify him as Christ. That is, the way that he's garbed. Though all angels are the servants of Christ, in this final book of the Bible, this is evidently, this one is the special envoy of Christ. He's another great angel and he bears all the credentials of his exalted position. And he comes down out of heaven from the presence of Christ, the one who is in the midst of the throne. Now he's clothed with a cloud. That's his uniform as a special envoy from Christ. The clouds of glory are associated with the second coming of Christ, But the angel described here is not coming in clouds of glory, but he's clothed with a cloud. Furthermore, this is not the second coming of Christ to the earth to establish his kingdom. Rather, this angel makes the announcement that he's coming soon. Angels, you recall, announced his first coming, and they will announce his second coming to the earth. Now, there's the rainbow upon his head. That's the cap for his uniform, and this is a reminder of God's covenant with man, that though the judgments have come thick and fast, and as we've seen, they're weird and wild, and it beggars language to describe them, that rainbow indicates that God will not send a flood to destroy man again." We are told that his face was as the sun. That's his badge of identification. This is the signature of the glorified Christ. It does not follow that this one must be, therefore, the Son of God. Why? Well, Moses' face shone after he'd been in the presence of God. This angel's face is shining because he's come out from the presence of Christ. And you will recall the raiment of the creatures at the resurrection of Christ also shown. I'll not turn to it, but it's in Luke 24, 4. The angel of Revelation 18, 1 is a light giver as the sun and moon, yet no one asserts that he is Christ. I take it that this is not Christ, but is what it says, an angel, another great mighty angel. Now, his are his pillars of fire. That's part of his uniform. But he has to have Jews, and he's come to make a special and solemn announcement of coming judgment. And all of these features of identification are his credentials and connect him to the person of Christ as his special envoy. The Lord Jesus is running everything at this particular point. He is the judge of all the earth. Now, we read here about this angel. He had in his hand a little book open. In other words, this strong angel has a little book. And he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. And he cried with a great voice, as when a lion roareth. And when he cried, the seven thunders spoke their own voices." The little book also causes some division among us brethren that we don't scrap over it because it's, we do not think, an essential. But could we identify the little book? Well, there are several reasons that I feel that it is the seven-sealed book, simply because that's the only book that's been before us. And it's not identified in any other way than it's called a little book. And frankly, there is a little different word used here for book instead of the word biblos that is used for the other book. But that would not preclude the possibility of it being the same book. In fact, we have no reason to think it might be any other and have, I think, every reason to believe that it is. Now, we find here that this little book then, if it is the same, it was originally in the hands of the Father in heaven. That's in Revelation 5, 1. We've already seen that. And it should be noted how it is first transferred to the nail-pierced hands of God the Son. It was given to the Lord Jesus. He's the only one that could open this book. And it's now opened because the opening of the seven seals, that opened the book, and this is still part of what's in the book. The seven trumpets, and six trumpets have been opened already. And then the Lord Jesus Christ, after he removes the seals, he in turn transfers it to the angel, who gives it finally to John to eat. This is the book of the title deed of the earth. It contains the judgments of the great tribulation by which the Lord Jesus is coming to power. The book is now open, and the judgments are on display. And this book is His authority for claiming both the sea and the earth for Christ. In other words, we find in the Word of God that He puts one foot on the sea and the other foot upon the earth. So he's claiming both for God. And we're told, back in Leviticus, the 25th chapter, verse 23, the Lord gave instructions to Israel concerning the land he'd given them. He says, "...the land shall not be sold forever, for the land is mine, for ye are strangers and sojourners with me." Now, there may be some of you that think you own a pretty good piece of the real estate of this earth. Well, I want to say to you that you don't. You say, well, you're wrong, preacher. I have the deed and I have the title deeds. And I have the title. It has come down, so-and-so transferred it to so-and-so and and -and so-and-so to so-and-so. And I paid good money for it and it's mine. Well, I still say you're wrong because your title didn't go back far enough. Somewhere back, Somebody stole it from the Indians. And then back of the Indians, they got it from somebody. They took it. Maybe there was nobody there. And they just walked in and occupied vacant property. But who does it belong to? Well, your property belongs to God. and I don't care who you are. You haven't paid him for it. The earth is his in the fullness thereof. Now, God not only claims the land, but he claims the sea and the land. And in Psalm 8, 6 and 8, listen to this. "...Thou madest him, that is, man, to have dominion over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, yea, and the beast of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatsoever passeth through the paths of the sea." Now, God says... I own the seas also as well as the land, and I have given this to you. I put man on the earth, and we are a tenant on the earth. Some of us haven't paid our rent lately, but we are in a little world that God created. It belongs to him. Man hasn't been able to pay him for it yet. Now, we have here something else that is quite interesting. This angel now claims the earth and the seas for the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is a method that we are acquainted with today. When Columbus landed here in the Western Hemisphere on an island, he got off the ship and went to the shore and planted the flag of Spain and claimed it in the name of the king and queen of the country that had sent him out. And he planted the flag there upon the shore. That's been a method that's been used from time to time. When men come to unoccupied territory, they've claimed it. Now, with the title deed of this earth in his hand, that is, in the hand of this angel, and by placing his right foot on the sea and his left foot upon the earth, in a great voice he claims all for Christ. The kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that will be through judgment. As Creator and Redeemer, the world belongs to Him. And the book here is described here as a little book. The reason I think it's called that is because the time of the Great Tribulation is not going to be long. I think that we've come to the halfway mark through the book of Revelation, and we're going to be told that... There's not much more time left. And so there's not much more to write down. It has to be a little book. And we're told that. For instance, in Romans nine twenty-eight, it says, "...for he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth." The Great Tribulation is really a short time. The Lord Jesus said it was a brief time. Daniel labeled it as seven years. That's not long, certainly. And the seven thunders here, I think, is God's amen to the angel's claim. And Psalm 29.3 says, The God of glory thundereth. And in Job 37.5 it says, God thundereth marvelously with his voice. Great things doeth he which we cannot comprehend. And Dr. Vincent makes this very enlightening comment. He says, "...the Jews were accustomed to speak of thunder as the seven voices of God." And if you examine Psalm 29, many of you, if you remember back when we were studying the book of Psalms, I called attention in that Psalm to how many times the voice of the Lord is mentioned. Brief Psalm, but it occurs seven times. The voice of the Lord, the seven voices of God, and they spoke of thunder as being that. So this is something that would be understood by Israel, and it's too bad that we don't take time to study this enough to find out what it means, instead of trying to cut off the corners and trim it down and make it fit into some system of prophecy. Reminds me of the lady that went into a shoe store and said she wanted a pair of shoes, described the Kind she wanted, and the clerk there says, well, what size do you wear, madam? Well, she says, I can get a four on. But she says, really, five is my size. But since six feels so good on my foot, I always buy a six. Well, may I say to you, that's like some of these systems of interpretation. They trim it down to fit in to the system. Well, let John say what he's saying here. These seven thunders here as the voice of God. I think the voice of the Lord Jesus now in heaven confirms what this angel is claimed because he's going to come to power on this earth. Now, in verse 4, I read my translation. And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Seal up the things which the seven thunders spoke, and write them down. The seven thunders, therefore, were intelligible. And this confirmation was also a statement. And John was a scribe, and he was taking down the visions as they were given to him. Turn back to Revelation 1.11, and you'll find that that's the way that he did it. Now, he was about to write what the seven thunders had spoken. He evidently heard it. They were audible words. But he was forbidden to do so. Now, this is a book of Revelation. Why is there something concealed here? And this is the only place in the book of Revelation where anything is sealed. Nothing else is. God makes it very clear at the end of the book that he's told everything. He's not holding back anything from man today, but it looks like it is. He was told at then: seal not the sayings of the prophecy of this book, for the time is at hand. That's Revelation 22.10. And yet here, this particular message, he's not permitted. And that is quite interesting. If this angel were Christ, then John probably would have fallen down and worshipped him. He did it first when he saw the glorified Christ in the first chapter of Revelation. But if this is Christ, why didn't he fall down you? But he doesn't. Why? It's an angel. It's a mere assumption to presume to know what the thunders spoke. Now, there are wild speculators that have made ridiculous guesses. Vitringa interpreted them as the seven crusades. What nonsense! Dan Buzz made them the seven nations that received the Reformation. How far-fetched can you be? Eliot makes them the Pope's bull against Luther. And that just isn't true, friends. And several of the cults, they have presumed to reveal the things which were uttered. May I say to you, The Lord Jesus Christ said to this angel, "...seal them up." And he says to John, "...don't you write down this." And they remain to this day a secret, and you don't know, and I don't know, and no one knows. And if we attempt to say, we are going to find ourselves ridiculous in a few years. There are those that step over the line and attempt to say... Even today, many men are tempting to say that. Why not just leave it as it is and draw the lesson from it? May I say this, that though He's revealing here Jesus Christ, there are a lot of things He's not telling you. There are a great many things today that God's not telling you. And this is important to see. Will you listen to him as he continues in verses 5 and 6? And I'm reading my translation. And the angel whom I saw standing up at the sea and upon the earth lifted up his right hand to heaven and sware by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things in it, and the sea and the things in it, that there shall be no longer delay." Now, you can see that in my translation, I did not attempt to smooth out the grammar. Made it a little difficult even for me to read it. And it's my own translation. But as I say, I don't recommend it. And I didn't smooth out the English because I wanted to just lift out the original as it is. Now, this angel here makes it clear. "...that he could not be Christ, since he takes an oath by the Eternal Creator." He lifted up his right hand to heaven and swore. He took an oath by the Eternal Creator, by him that liveth forever and ever. Now, if he were Christ, he would swear by himself, because you remember... The writer to the Hebrews says in Hebrews six thirteen, "...for when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swore by himself." He couldn't swear by anything, because there's none greater than God. Now, the angel swore by another, not by himself. Why? Because he's not God. He's not the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the eternal God in the beginning." was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. John 1, 1 and 2. And the Lord Jesus Himself made this declaration in John 8:58. Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Before Abraham was, I am. And Christ is the Creator. Listen to Him. In John 1:3, all things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And again in Colossians 1:16, for by Him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible. Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by Him and for Him. And the angel takes an oath in the name of Christ, who's in heaven. And as Christ's representative, he claims it all for Christ. And you notice I changed that last part of verse 6. And there shall be time no longer, to where it says there shall be no longer delay. Actually, it doesn't mean that there shall be time no longer. And I'm not going into that. I just want to bring out what the angel is really saying. It's the glad announcement from heaven to God's saints on earth. They are in the midst of all this trouble. How long will it last? The meaning is that the time now is very brief before Christ returns. It's a confirmation of the words of Christ in his Olivet Discourse. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. And he's telling the elect now, it's not going to be long. It won't be long. And it brings out the fact He's saying to them, You don't worry. He that endures to the end, the same shall be saved. Why? Because they're sealed, and they're going to make it through the great tribulation and the prayers of the martyrs. We saw in Revelation 6:10 that the kingdom of heaven is at hand, and it is the fulfillment of what we call the Lord's prayer, Thy kingdom come. And it's coming soon, at this particular time. That doesn't refer to right now, because I don't know, and no one knows on earth. Now, verse 7, "...but in the days of the sound of the seventh angel, when he's about to blow the trumpet, and the mystery of God is finished, as he gave glad tidings to his servants, the prophets." This all takes place when the seventh angel is preparing to blow the trumpet. And this would indicate that the seventh trumpet brings us to the conclusion of the great tribulation. It is at this time that the mystery of God is finally made clear. Many single facets of this mystery are here. There are many things God hasn't revealed today. There is a mystery concerning the nation Israel, concerning judgment, concerning suffering, concerning injustice, and the silence of God, and the coming kingdom. The basic problem is this. Why did God permit evil, and why has He tolerated it for so long? And you want to know something? I've studied theology for many years, and I know the answers that men give today, but God hasn't handed in His answer yet. And He's going to someday, I've got a lot of questions to ask him, and there are many things I can't answer today. Maybe you didn't know that, but if you listen to me long, you'll find out I don't have the answer to many of the questions of life today. I'm disturbed because we've got some brethren that seem to have all the answers. We don't have all the answers. And this passage of Scripture, and the fact there's something that we don't know about yet, and it's been sealed, means that God's got a whole lot to tell us yet. And when we get in his presence, we're going to find out. Now, what is the answer to your question today, friend? I can't answer it. And I want to say this to you. I don't think there's anybody else that can answer it for you. But there are many that will give you an answer. May I say this to you? I do not know the answer to your problem. But I know the one who does. And I'd like to say to you, I don't have the answer to my questions, but I put my hand in his. And he's saying to me, he says, My child, you walk with me through the dark. It's going to be all right, and we're going to come out in the light. And when we do, you'll understand. And I suggest to you today, just put your hand in the hand of the man of Galilee. I don't mind using that, because that one is the one that has the answer to your questions. Because he isn't just a man of Galilee, he is very God, a very God. Now we're going to see that he disposes of this little book. That is, he passes it on to John. And I read now in my translation, verse 8, chapter 10. And the voice which I heard out of heaven, I heard it again speaking with me and saying, Go. "...take the book which is open in the hand of the angel who standeth upon the sea and upon the earth." Now, this order comes from Christ in heaven as he's directing every operation recorded in the book of Revelation. He's in full charge. This book is the book that glorifies our wonderful Savior. He's the judge of all the earth here. And we see him here as God has highly exalted him and given him a name above every name. Now, if the voice here is not Christ, then he has given the order to the angel to speak from heaven. And John is apparently returned to the earth in the spirit because the little book that was formerly in the hand of God the Father is now transferred to John. And I read on at verses 9 and 10 and continue my translation. And I went away to the angel, saying to him, Give to me the little book. And he said to me, Take and eat it up, and it shall make thy belly bitter, but in thy mouth it shall be as sweet as honey. And I took the little book out of the hand of the angel, and I ate it up. And it was in my mouth, as sweet as honey, and when I'd eaten it, my belly was made bitter. Now, John becomes a participant now in the great drama which is unfolding before us. He's required now to do a very strange thing, one, of course, that has a very typical meaning. He eats the little book at the instructions of the angel, and the results are bittersweet. Eating the little book means, of course, to receive the Word of God with faith, and that's the teaching of the Word of God. By the way, you don't have to guess at that. In Jeremiah fifteen sixteen, we read, "...thy words were found, and I did eat them, and thy word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart, for I am called by thy name, O Lord God of hosts, so that..." Jeremiah likens the word, and the appropriation of it is eating it. And Ezekiel does the same thing in chapter 3, verses 1 and 3. Let me read. Moreover, he said unto me, Son of man, eat that thou findest. Eat this roll, and go speak unto the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth. He caused me to eat that roll. And he said unto me, Son of man, cause thy belly to eat and fill thy bowels with this roll that I give thee. Then did I eat it, and it was in my mouth as honey for sweetness. Now, the roll here is not a bread roll. I hope you understand that. It was a scroll in that day, and Ezekiel said that he ate it. It was just like cake. Talk about let him eat cake. That's what the Word of God is, friends. It's bread, but it is also bittersweet. Now, again, we are told in Proverbs 16:24, "Pleasant words are as a honeycomb, sweet to the soul and health to the bones." And then again, in Psalm 119,103, and that psalm just glorifies the word of God, it says, "How sweet are thy words unto my taste, yea, sweeter than honey to my mouth." Now, the part of the Word of God taken by John was judgment, and it was sweet because to know the future and for God to say, as he did to Abraham, shall I withhold from my friend Abraham that which I'm about to do? And God says, we're friends, and he said, I'd like to tell you what I'm going to do, and that's sweet to know that. But When you find out that judgment is coming, well, may I say that John eagerly received the word of God, but when he saw that more judgment was to follow, it brought travail of soul and sorrow of heart. It was sweet in his mouth and bitter in his digestive system. Now, if you and I can take delight in reading this section of the Word of God and the judgments that are falling on the earth, and we can take delight in that, then we need to do a great deal of praying, get the mind of God here, because it's sweet to know the book of Revelation and what God intends to do. But when we find out that it's judgment and we look around about us today upon a Christ-rejecting world, We can't rejoice in that, friends. That becomes bitter. And then there's another, I think, very real application of this. Many folk begin the study of prophecy with enthusiasm. But when they find that it is applicable to the life and it makes demands upon them personally, they lose interest. And it becomes a bitter thing. You hear people say, today, oh, I don't want to hear about the book of Revelation. I don't like prophecy. It frightens me. Well, may I say to you that it is supposed to do that, but it should be in your mouth sweet as honey. And unfortunately, there are a lot of people who like to study prophecy because it's natural curiosity. They do want to know the future. But when they discover, you see, that there's nothing in the Word of God that ministers so to a holy life than the study of prophecy. If any man have this hope? Uh, John says, let him purify himself. You can't live a dirty life, my friend, and be a student of prophecy. You'll become abnormal if that happens to be true. And that's the reason we get so much abnormality today in prophecy, because the Word of God is not having its way in the heart and life of men and women. And it's unfortunate that people will get interested in prophecy, but not in Christian living. Years ago, when Dr. Gabeline visited out here at the Green Hotel, Dr. Chafer wrote me and asked me to go down and visit him, he said he gets lonesome. And I went down to see him, and I had just come to California at the time, and he said to me, how do you like? having a church in California. Well, I told him I thought it was wonderful, and I enjoyed it. But I said, there's something very strange out here. And I've learned that it's true everywhere since then. But then I had not detected it before. I said, you know, I can teach the book of Revelation in my church, and I can fill it up on Wednesday night. Then I can teach the epistle to the Romans, and I can empty it. Believe me, friends, that is true. Great many people interested in that. And I never shall forget what Dr. Gagelein said. He says in that broken accent he had, that Prussian accent, he says, Brother McGee, you're going to find that a great many of the saints are more interested in Antichrist than they are in Christ. And I've discovered that he was accurate. Now, verse 11, I'm reading it. And they say to me, it's necessary for you to prophesy again against people and nations and tongues and kings. And you can be sure of one thing, that John was properly integrated. He believed that all nations and all peoples, all tongues, all colors ought to hear the word of God. But they need to hear it because... They need to be warned that judgment was coming and that if they went through the great tribulation period, they'd find out it wasn't the millennium, but it was the opposite, that they'd feel like it was hell itself that they had entered. And therefore, it made John sad, that part of it. That's the reason that this little book became bitter to John. He must prophesy against many before Christ comes to his kingdom. And much prophecy is to follow. To tell the truth, we are not quite halfway through this book. And prophecy about the nation and peoples is necessarily against them. It's judgment to come. And so this new series of prophecies, it'll begin in chapter 12, and it will reveal the fact that there was a great deal more to say. The study of prophecy, I think, will have a definite effect upon your life. It will either bring you closer to Christ or take you farther from Him. That brings us to chapter 11. And here the theme continues with this interlude at the beginning. And then we have the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And we find out here that there are 42 months remaining of the times of the Gentiles and that there are two witnesses to prophesy the 42 months. And that's the third woe. And the seventh trumpet now is to be blown. We see all of that in this chapter. And I've divided the chapter like this. The date for the ending of the times of the Gentiles. That's in the first two verses. Then in verses 3 through 12, you have the duration of the prophesying of the two witnesses. And then verses 13 and 14, you have the doom of the second woe and the great earthquake. All right, now, and the blowing, by the way, of the seventh trumpet. And we have here now the seventh trumpet, the end of the great tribulation, and the opening of the temple in heaven. And that will be in verses 15 through 19. All right, now, this chapter brings us Back to Old Testament ground, we'll see the temple. We'll be dealing with time periods, which you do not with the church. And the distinction is made between Jews and Gentiles, which indicate that we're again in the Old Testament economy. Now, chronologically here, the seventh trumpet brings us to the return of Christ at the end of the Great Tribulation period. Now, we're going to see that when we get to it, and we'll move now right into the text. So we have, in the first two verses, the date for the ending of the times of the Gentiles. That hasn't anything you see to do with the church at all. Church is gone. If we can just get it in our thinking, the church is not here on the earth at this time.